Turn with me to Daniel chapter 8 as we continue to work through the book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at this chapter in its entirety today, and then next week I'm going to look specifically at verse 27 by itself. Uh, we'll be reading 27 today as a part of our, our work. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we come again to a section of Scripture that is difficult, at least on the outset in our initial reading, doesn't seem to make any sense to us, and it really doesn't seem to apply to us a whole lot. There's about things and places and people that are so far removed from our own. So Lord, we pray that You would show us Your Word and show us how indeed it does apply to us, speak to us now more than ever, that we are being encouraged by Your Word, that we are being strengthened by Your Word and even convicted of our sin, being led to the truth by Your Word. Well, we pray that you would open it up to us now, change us by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've been reading through Daniel, I've read a lot about different kingdoms and places in the world, and not just, not just the ones then, but even, even recent. And I read a story about in World War II, it was after World War II actually, there were these German leaders who were put on trial these leaders who were considered part of like Hitler's inner circle. And these trials are called the Nuremberg Trials. You've probably heard of them. And they were put on trial for various war crimes, least of which attempted extermination of the Jewish people, along with lots of other uh, exterminations or attempted exterminations of other marginalized groups. Germany's desire to create this super race failed. And so there were trials, and these trials were kind of the final vestiges of their years of intimidation and domination that they had. After being found guilty, 14 of these leaders were executed and cremated. And after they were cremated, it was kind of a done in secrecy, they were taken to an unknown location along a known river, I forgot the name of the river, uh, in the German countryside, and those ashes were just dumped into the river scattered amongst the mud and the fishes, becoming just part of the everyday normal life. Those who once ruled with an iron fist were now part of a riverbed. As we get into Daniel 8 today, we have another picture of nations and kingdoms ruling and ruling other nations and kingdoms and these nations and kingdoms going at it with one another. We have a picture of this little horn again that we looked at in chapter 7, causing trouble with God's people, still coming up against God Himself. And we have the historical account of these former kings and their kingdoms also, and their demise, now part of the river of history. But God's people still remain. Daniel 8 is similar to uh, Daniel 7 because it presents us with similar kinds of symbols, but those symbols are still difficult. It also gives us some very plain principles concerning how the believer should live in the world today. I think chapter 8 gives us a much clearer interpretation of those symbols than chapter 7 does, but you can really use a lot of the symbology in 8 to help you understand 
chapter 7. I think a lot of that would be fun to discuss in more of a classroom type setting where you could ask questions about all the particulars. But what we're looking at this morning is a picture of our Savior. The same thing we do every Sunday morning when we come together, and we'll see him in this text plainly. Again, we're going to consider 27 by itself next week, but I will read it together so we can have context. As we look at this text today, we're going to break it into three main ideas. First, nation against nation, kings against kings, and then, lastly, the prince of princes. So with that, let's look together at the text, Daniel chapter 8 in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Daniel 8, starting at verse 1. The third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which was in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, I was at the Eli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but was cast down into the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power." Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it came four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even on the host of heaven, and some of the hosts And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giver over to the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood There stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard the man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face on the ground. 
He touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of the four others arose, four kingdoms shall fell from his nation, but not with his power. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit, prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision. And I did not understand it. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So quite a bit going on here. Lots of different stuff going on. It's been it's been an interesting study. I really have enjoyed it quite a bit. So for the context here, I want to provide kind of a picture of the setting where Daniel was in Daniel received his vision during the reign of Belshazzar, which was the same as in uh, in chapter 7, but this is about two years later. Remember, Belshazzar was the ruler in chapter 5, and his reign was relatively short compared to the other ones. But for whatever reason, the Lord chose during this time to give Daniel these visions. And he mentions a few places here in verse 2, and this particular place is about 200 miles east of Babylon. And there's a couple of ways that you can read this. He was either there in this place called Susa. He was either there when he had the vision or during the vision he was taken there. There's lots of ways that you can read that. Either way, the city of Susa would later become a very important Persian city. It serves as a backdrop and power struggle of what we see here in chapter 8 because this is where these two animals are fighting each other and all these horns are coming up and breaking and so forth. Uh, notice... Daniel also makes sure that we understand that this vision is linked with the one in chapter 7. That's what he says in verse 1. A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And so he's kind of making sure that we understand that these two things are linked together. This is important. It's important that we understand that they're linked together because we don't want to or need to attempt to do crazy things with the text that we haven't already done in chapter 7. We don't need to do something different with 8 than what we did with 7. If you've heard some of the contemporary teaching on Daniel, you know there are some pretty outlandish things out there. Really outlandish things. In fact, don't go looking for them. I'm not opposed to learning alternative views, but some stuff is just straight up silly. And so you can, and there's deep rabbit holes associated with a lot of this kind of stuff. And so I would encourage you to at least look at more scholarly attempts at uh, understanding this kind of stuff. Uh, seeing these two visions linked is very helpful. Though they're a few years apart, the same God gives them, and he gives them to the same man, Daniel. 
As we start with this vision, we have this great interpretation that's given to us by the angel Gabriel, who was commanded by a man that was standing by a river, or someone who had the appearance of a man. Oh, it seems like we've had those words before in the last chapter, right? Someone who had the appearance of the Son of Man. Of course, no mere man commands Gabriel, whose name literally means the strength of God. This is the one that God sends out to do the strong things, and so no mere man is going to command him. This is not no mere man. This is the pre-incarnate Son of Man, Jesus Christ, introduced to us in the previous chapter, here for us again, making sure the people of God get an interpretation of the rams and the goats that we see. This is important. Because without them, we'd be stuck wondering what all of this was about. Imagine reading this without Gabriel's interpretation. What would we do? We wouldn't even know where to go with this. But with them, we can be warned about what is to come. And we'll see that Jesus has already done the same during his earthly ministry as well. Both accounts serve to help us to warn us even today. It brings us to the first point, nation against nation. As we work through this, the way I'm going to do it is kind of looking at the vision itself and Gabriel's interpretation kind of as in parallel, looking at them side by side as as a way to do this. It's a lot easier that way. And so it begins with a ram that has two horns. We read these horns are really long. One of them is longer than the other. And this ram is seemingly invincible, right? It kind of goes to and fro. It says it's charging in all directions as if to provoke all comers to a fight. It is there to to fight others. Gabriel tells us that this represents the Medes and the Persians. The Persian's horn likely being a little bit longer because it was the stronger of the two empires. Makes sense. Along comes a goat, though. Just when we thought the ram was going to be invincible, you have this goat that is running so fast it's basically floating. I just love the, the picture here. And it has a horn, a conspicuous horn, mind you, right between its eyes. And we're told that this is Greece. And that the great horn is the first king of Greece that we know to be Alexander the Great. This floating kind of represents the expansion of Alexander. If you've read history, you know that Alexander's expansion was swift, very methodical. He took over pretty much whatever he wanted to take over. And so here we have this match for the ages. This invincible ram versus this flying goat who's coming in from the West, two seemingly invincible powers that are going to fight each other. And you've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. People who understand this kind of literature, apocalyptic-type literature, I've I've heard it said that there are two people that understand it best, children and people who read fantasy. Because it seems so strange. But if you're used to reading about flying goats and things like that, it's not all that bad. And so I encourage you to read fantasy, because I think it does help with some of the apocalyptic literature that we read here, because you kind of do see this as, wow, this is getting ready to happen, isn't it? All this build up, though, it's a short match. The goat wins big. Verses 7 and 8, I'll read for us again. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast it down to the ground and trampled him. And there was none who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat became exceedingly great. When he was strong, the great horn was broken. Instead of it came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. 
This is exactly what history teaches us. This is exactly what history teaches us. Gabriel does as well. That Alexander came in, he broke the backs of the Medes and the Persians. There was none to deliver them. And just when you think this horn couldn't, or this goat couldn't be any more powerful, it breaks. This horn between his eyes shatters. And from it, from this giant kingdom that Alexander had made, come four smaller kingdoms with four lesser rulers. And so you do, you have that in history. Alexander's kingdom was broken up into these four kind of sections, and these all these people are named, names that I'd only really knew two of. And so I'm going to say them just because I'm going to make a point about saying them. There was one in Greece and Macedonia named Cassander. And in Asia Minor, there was Lysimachus. And in Egypt, there was Ptolemy. You've probably heard of Ptolemy. And then in Israel and Mesopotamia, there was one named Seleucus, which I had, had heard of as well. All these names, each one, if you go and study these names, they each have their own stories and histories and all kinds of intrigue. But most people have never heard of Lysimachus of Asia Minor. I say this to make the point. Just like the Nuremberg trials, these once powerful figures of Hitler's hate machine are gone. These once powerful Greek generals are now part of the mud in the ground somewhere. Look up, where's Ptolemy buried? Nobody knows. Buried the same place as Alexander? Nobody knows. As Daniel received this vision, he was nearing the end of his 70 years of exile. Soon Cyrus would come in and deliver the exiles of Judah, allow them to go back to Israel, which Daniel did not go back to Israel, consequently enough. And again, their temple would be erected and they could again worship the one true God as they are directed to do so in the Scriptures. Yet, this time is not going to be without war and without hardship. That's exactly what Daniel is being told here. Daniel and the people of God aren't, aren't to expect a time of peace after their time of exile. In fact, it's just going to be more of the same. Just a new ruler with a new regime New ways to rule over the people of God's choosing. Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples, had a lot to say about this. Turn with me to Mark chapter 13. As you read through the Gospels, particularly as you get towards the end of the Gospels, you read this stuff from Jesus. And I'm just going to pick out a couple of little spots where Jesus talks about this. But really, go back and read the tail end of his ministry in each of the Gospels. He talks about the end times. He talks about their times. The end times being the times after Jesus rises from the dead and raises into heaven. And so, in chapter 13, verses 5 through 8... And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings, birth pains. 
What does he say concerning these wars and kingdoms and nations and all of this business going on? If you're a disciple, you're hearing this when Rome basically has control over the known world. What do you mean nations against nations? There's only one nation. Do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. When I watch movies or shows, a lot of times even when I read books, I will usually read the spoiler ahead of time. I'll go read the the end. I'll go to Wikipedia and read the whole plot just so that I can enjoy the movie. And you're like, what? That takes all the joy out of it. People are like, that takes all the fun out of it. Why do you even do that? For me, it takes all the tension out of the movie. I'm just able to sit there and enjoy the thing, right? There's all the pictures. I can look at them. Those are nice. I already know what happens. I don't tell other people I'm not one of those people. I just don't like there to be any weirdness or tension or wondering in my in myself. I get so much more joy out of those things by knowing the end. When Jesus gave this information to the disciples, when he had Gabriel inter- interpret Daniel's vision, he was doing that so that we might be prepared so that we would not be caught off guard, so that we would know the end at the beginning, so that we wouldn't be caught off guard when there's big battles between rams and goats that are taking place, when things look like they can't be destroyed or actually destroyed. That ram wasn't supposed to die. Look at it. And it, it died pretty easy. That goat wasn't supposed to die. That goat was flying when it came in. And now it's just kind of scattered goat all over the place. And now it's not a goat at all. It shouldn't scare us when these things happen. It shouldn't surprise us either. Prophecy serves as a great comfort for the people of God. It's very comforting to know that while there will be wars and rumors of wars, there will still be a people of God. While the ram and the goat slam against each other, while the goat horn shatters into other conspicuous horns, the promises of God are still yes and amen in Jesus Christ. While the nations of this world are anything but secure, the God of those nations holds his people safe and secure. What greater comfort is there in this life? Reminds me of Heidelberg Catechism 1. To understand this truth, what greater comfort is there in life that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This life is not without upheaval and not without personal trial for the people of God. That brings me to the second point, kings against kings. Next, we'll consider this little horn that rises up from the ruin of the goat's head that is now four separate kingdoms. Those four kingdoms begin to reach their end. As you read history, that's exactly what happens. Rome starts to rise up and these kingdoms start to kind of peter out. There's going to come another king, though. And we read about this one in history as well. And his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. I mentioned him a few weeks ago. Or just simply Antiochus IV. Epiphanes is something that he gave to himself, as a matter of fact. The word Epiphanes literally in the Greek means God manifest. He thought he was God manifest. In fact, he thought he was Zeus, here come to rule the earth, which will make sense in a moment. The king Antiochus rose up from the Seleucid Empire, one of those four horns, 
and one of Alexander the Great's general states, and he was crazy by all accounts. By all accounts, he was absolutely nuts. He was rebuffed by Rome. He went back to Greece and tried to attack Rome, and that didn't work. In fact, Rome made him pay tribute, a really hefty tribute that he really couldn't afford. So in order to keep money in the kingdom, he conquered Egypt, one of the former states of Greece, and went into Israel and began his tyranny there. And his tyranny in Israel took a particular form. He went into the new rebuilt kingdom that the people of God had built, and he built an idol to Zeus in the middle of the temple. So imagine this temple that was built according to God's specifications for the sacrifice and all the different things that went on in the temple. And this man put up a a statue of Zeus in it. Not only that, he insisted that everyone worship it. He changed all the sacrifices, which we read about here in Daniel 8, right, concerning the sacrifices. He changed all the sacrifices. These sacrifices are no longer to this God that you name, but it's to the gods of the Greek pantheon, me, myself being included. He abolished the keeping of the Sabbath. He abolished circumcision. He burned uh, copies of the Torah. In fact, anyone caught with a copy of the Torah, anyone caught circumcising their child, anyone caught practicing the Sabbath, anyone caught keeping the Sabbath at all, were to be killed. And so thousands of Jews were killed during this time. He attacked the Jews, but more specifically, he attacked their worship of God. And while the Jews had been attacked and even sent into exile, as we've read, as we studied together, their worship hadn't been directly attacked like this. And now in their own hometown, in their temple built to their God, they're being directly persecuted. Again, we see this in Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 and 12, verses 24 and 25, if you want to look back at those. These things were directly prophesied by the prophet Daniel hundreds of years before they would take place. And the, one, of the, one of the angels even says, well, how long is this going to take place? So we can go ahead and talk about this. It's important because everybody's looking at it and thinking, anytime we see a number, we're like, oh, there's something. So let's look at verses 13 and 14, Daniel 8. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And so how long are these persecutions of the little horns take place? He said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So we had this number. I'm just going to go ahead and make a quick quick work of it. It seems to match up. 2,300 days seems to match up with about the time of that, that those persecutions took place in Jerusalem, a little over six years. We don't know that for sure. We don't need to go and count exactly how many hours 2300 evenings and mornings is and set it against history and make the Bible fight for itself because that's not the purpose of this text or the purpose of scripture at all. Remember, we can't miss the forest for the trees here, but I do tend to believe that this represents the length of those persecutions until the Jews revolted, which is we have in our history. Uh, they revolted, they took back their temple, and this is what the Jewish people celebrate even today. It's the, uh, it's the holiday called Hanukkah. 
And again, we have a picture here, though, of this future persecution that is to take place. The kind of persecution was much different because it was directly against their worship. The worship of Jews is directly affected by this. As we've studied through Isaiah, we studied in Hosea as well, as even as we've looked in some of the Old Testament history books all the way back to, to Ruth and Judges and so forth, we know that the people of God themselves hadn't always been faithful to worship God as He intended to be worshipped. That's putting it mildly. Antiochus isn't the only one who built idols in the temple. Golden cows were placed in the temples in the northern kingdom under King Jeroboam, which we will eventually get to as we study First and Second Kings. So over 300 years prior, the people of God are learning through Daniel that they will face religious persecution that they haven't yet known. And it's going to happen after they've spent an inconsiderable effort and a lot of money and time and years rebuilding the temple and reestablishing the sacrifices and the Sabbath and circumcision and all these things that are distinctly Jewish. If you read the the back half of the Old Testament, that's what it's all about, them reestablishing those things that were uniquely theirs. If they didn't know the end of the story, if they didn't know that all these things were going to happen, yet it was going to be fixed again, they might this might be completely disheartening. It's not good news that all of these things are going to happen to them, but it could be a whole lot worse. Jesus had similar news to give to his disciples the night before his death. Look with me at John chapter 16. John chapter 16 verses 1 through the first part of 4, and I'll read, I'll read this quickly. I have said all these things. I have said all these things that you may keep from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. If you go back to the end of 15, you read about how the world hated Jesus first. That's why it's going to one day hate the disciples. You look here at 16, we are told why He told them that. And us, so that we would remember. He goes further to speak of the kind of persecution that will come up. They will put them out of the synagogues, which is exactly what Rome did which is exactly what the Jewish people did to the Christians in those days as well. They will kill you in service to their gods. And the reason they'll do it is because they do not know the Father, which means that they have not, they have also not known Jesus. Jesus says, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them. In other words, don't be surprised. This is going to happen. Happened to the Jews 150 years before Jesus. It happened in Jesus' day. It happened after Jesus' day. It's happened through the history of God's people throughout. Yet here we are. Are we without wounds? Have we come away completely unscathed? No. Many thousands upon thousands of Christians have lost their lives. Thousands have been murdered. 
They've watched their families die. They've lost their homes. They've lost their possessions. They've lost their livelihoods. All for worshiping of God of the Bible or for speaking the name of Jesus Christ. Yet, what has come of it? The church has prospered. The name of Jesus is being lifted up. The gospel has circled the globe many, many times. Places where Christians shouldn't be are the fastest growing churches in the world. Because evil cannot win. Satan does have a foothold on this earth, but it was put there by his creator who will eventually destroy him. The sins of the people of this world cannot thwart the God of this world. Tertullian is famous for saying the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but it's the blood of Christ that saves the church, and it's Jesus on whom the church rests. And we see this promise in Daniel 8. That brings us to the last point, the prince of princes. Look with me at verse 25 of Daniel 8. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Prince of princes that this little horn comes up against is ultimately his end. Like all evil, it attempts to fight against God and always loses, even though it thinks it can win this time. Evil will fight a losing fight on purpose because it doesn't know any better. It will continue to throw itself at God and be broken. And all that evil will eventually break against the prince of princes. Here in Daniel 8 is the same one that is called the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, the God who judges the little horn and orchestrates his destruction. It was Antiochus in the second century Jerusalem, and we could name many other antichrists between him and today. We could probably even name some today if we really wanted to. They would rather us worship them than Christ. They would rather offer us the salvation that Jesus offers us, though Jesus alone can save us. And while they may take our lives, they can't truly have power over us because our fate is held secure by the one who spoke all things into existence. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in a very uncertain time. If you've been paying attention at all, while all of history has been this way, just read this, right? It was very uncertain in those days, very uncertain. Our time has really been shaken, I say, in the last few years, particularly since COVID, we've seen how fragile the world's economy is, how fragile the world's peace is. Things that we have been, have we've taken for granted our whole life have been tested. Perhaps even in some places, those things have been tested on purpose. Who knows? all by the powers that rule over us. Yet we have no indication that God has fallen asleep, that he has forgotten his people, that he has decided to stop being eternal and turned himself off. In fact, the church has continued to grow and thrive. We've seen it inside this building even, for sure, as God has really blessed this church. We've seen it around the world as Christianity continues to thrive in the non-English speaking portion of the globe in particular. And while things seem uncertain to us, we, brothers and sisters in Christ, should know better. God has told us what to expect, and so this should ease our anxiety and our concerns, and we should stop borrowing from tomorrow. 
Because we already know its contents. We already know who wins. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be persecution of the people of God. Yet there will always be a people of God. God's word will always stand firm. God's kingdom is always coming to this earth. And Jesus is still preparing a place for those who love him. While uncertainty reigns on earth, Jesus' sacrifice for his people is eternal. He became sin that we might become the very righteousness of God. And it's through his work and life and death that we are called saints. And throughout the images of the last few weeks, the saints prevail because Christ prevails. If you're here this morning and you're in unbelief, I want you to hear these words. Look at these pictures. Look who wins. Christ prevails. Whatever you're worshiping in your unbelief does not or will not. While it may be tempting to follow the rams and the goats of this world, know that one day they will be part of the mud lining the rivers of this world. Yet Christ is alive today. And one day he will separate the sheep from the goats, those who know him from those who don't. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. Again, for the people of God, rest in his promises to us. Read again the truth here in Daniel chapter 8. encourage you to go back and look at 7 and 8 again. The end is clear. God is on the throne. There will be difficulty, but we will endure because we are his. Let us endeavor to live this truth more and let us give this truth to a lost world. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us. That we would no longer forget the truth that you gave us back in Daniel 8, that you gave your disciples in the upper room the night before you were killed that you still give us today any time we dare to read the truth of your word. Lord, help us to put our concerns to rest, to leave tomorrow where it is, and to trust in you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.